I met him in the elevator and he, I don't remember what sparked the conversation, but I remember him saying, ah, and he pulled out of his bag a little tablet. And it was that seven inch Akash tablet that India was selling for quote unquote, I think $35. And they said, this is the education tablet that's going to revolutionize India. And he said, I've just come back from India and I've seen this tablet and wouldn't it be great if someone were to put the Kenyan curriculum onto a tablet like this so Kenyan students could also learn in the same way. And I thought, yeah, that sounds really easy. Hi, I'm Nivi. I'm the COO of a company called Brick and you're listening to Gut Talks Double G U Double T. Hi everyone. Welcome to season one of Gut Talks Double G U Double T, a podcast focusing on business and tech for good experience design, and gut feelings. I'm Maria, designer, strategist, and venture builder, running two ventures, Gut, Double G, UWT, and Other Dots Foundation. I decided to launch Gut Talks as the pandemic hit with an ambition to educate, put some karma on the board, and feature entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and investors who deserve recognition and have inspiring stories to tell. Feel free to email me if you need me, maria at god.com, W-G-U-T, or check the links in the show notes. Now let's get started. Our guest today is Nivi Sharma. She's the COO of Brick and co-founder of eLimu, the first company to digitize the Kenyan primary school curriculum. She spent the last seven years at least of her career developing edtech solutions in emerging markets, specifically in Kenya, Africa, but also reaching other markets such as Latin America. Through her work, which is quite on-site and hands-on, immersed in the realities as well, in remote areas, Nivi aims to give access to the internet to 800 million Africans who currently don't have access, especially for children education, but also businesses. So Nivi, Hi, it's a real pleasure having you on Gut Talks. Thank you so much for having me. Let's kick this off and just tell us who's Nivi? What made you do what you do? Why are you doing it? Well, let me start with Nivi in her 20s. Nivi was a young lady who didn't quite know what she wanted to do in the world. She knew what she didn't want and she didn't want to work in corporate space. She didn't want to work in a soul-wrenching office. She didn't want to work on things that didn't matter. And she had quite a good sense of what does matter. And so as Nivi grew up, finally, (laughs) she grew into a young lady who was really committed to thinking about what impact means, what change means, and the kind of change and impact we need in the world. And so with the passion for technology, that meant quite naturally for me to work in tech and do tech for impact. So that started as me working on Ilimu, starting a company to digitize content for kids and transitioning slowly to a broader sense of digital access and thinking about how people can get online, what the internet means to people, what they do online and how they can use it to improve their lives. Thank you. I like how you presented that. So I also want to ask you a little bit about the transformational points in your life. What influenced you? And what was this aha moment when you said, right, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm going to do. And did you trust your gut in that sense as well? 
And actually, this is the moment. <laughs> so the transformational points in my life that I, you know, clearly remember as aha moments that were career defining for me. One was I was working in IT, IT training, and it literally was an elevator pitch. I bumped into the then permanent secretary of education in the elevator of a building. And his name is Dr. Bitangin Demo, and a real visionary and forward thinker in the ICT space in Kenya. And one of the people who I think really enabled Kenya to be what it is on the map today, like that bright shining spot of innovation and technology. And I met him in the elevator and he, I don't remember what sparked the conversation, but I remember him saying, ah, and he pulled out of his bag a little tablet. And it was that seven inch Akash tablet that India was selling for quote unquote, I think $35. And they said, this is the education tablet that's going to revolutionize India. And he said, I've just come back from India and I've seen this tablet. And wouldn't it be great if someone were to put the Kenyan curriculum onto a tablet like this? So Kenyan students could also learn in the same way. And I thought, yeah, that sounds really easy. And so it was right around the time when almost a perfect storm was brewing in Nairobi. The iHub had just been founded and I had just met Eric Hersman and I spent some time in the iHub after work. I would go there, hang out, play foosball, make friends. I met my co-founder who I started talking to about this idea of Ilimu. And she said, yeah, let's do it. And she had a full-time job. I had a full-time job and we built Ilimu, which was, you know, just this hodgepodge software platform that didn't work very well to begin with. And we populated it with lessons and we met a textbook publisher and we said, can we copy paste from your textbook? And we don't have very much money, but we want the rights and royalty to be able to do that. And he worked out a great deal with us and he was the only textbook publisher who allowed us to do that. And we literally took his revision textbooks for Kenyan primary school students and we copy pasted them into small little bite-sized chunks. And we said, let's add a video here. Let's add an infographic here. Let's add a song here. Let's make every little lesson, however small and bite-sized it is, let's make it fun, engaging, and memorable for our students. So that's how Ilimu started. And I think that meeting with Professor Bitangin Demo was a real turning point and a real aha moment for me. Because when I went back to him nine months later and said, hey, do you remember asking me this question? Well, we've done it now. He was such a great supporter of the work that we did. So that was this aha moment. So you went with your gut. Do you also go with your gut when you make other decisions? Because we're going to jump in just after that into some of the work on the ground that you're doing. But what's your relationship with your gut feeling? So fast forward 10 years now where I've sold Ilimu since then. And, you know, I'm leading a business at the beginning of last year, had 100 employees and, you know, thinking through very different challenges, very different problems, very different business and regulatory and partnership and stakeholder problems. And for me, gut means almost this connection between the past and the present. So when you're in the present and you're thinking about something really stupid you did in the past, that feeling is called regret, Right. And you're like, oh, I really shouldn't have spoken to that boy, or I shouldn't have said this, or I shouldn't have done that, or I should have done this, uh, or, you know, whatever you call it, that feeling is regret. And you almost feel it in the same place as you feel this gut feeling, either like in the pit of your stomach. And so my theory is that when you're having that feeling, 
that the past you is also having it. Like you do feel something in the pit of your stomach that is a gut instinct. And maybe it's your future self who's feeling regret and telling you, don't do it. <laughs> and so when I do feel some fear, like doesn't mean every time you feel butterflies in your stomach, it means you're going to regret that. But it does make me stop and say, let me close my eyes really tight and think about future me. Will she hate me for doing this? And if so, why not? And then from there, I kind of go to a very rational pros and cons way of thinking about something. But my gut is generally go. Like, yes, it's not wait, stop, think. It's yes, go faster now, try it. And so there are a few moments where I think, is there a future version of Nivi who is speaking to me right now, telling me not to make this decision? And that's what I think of as gut and how I like to think about it. Cool. I like the way you broke it down. So we spoke about why you're doing what you're doing and how you got started in doing this meaningful work. But it's linked to many things like infrastructure, access to information, travel, cultural differences. So there are many parts to it. So what did you learn so far? Maybe there's a story you can share about how did anything go wrong, maybe, that moved you forward. So there are two more kind of transformational moments that really defined this journey. And so after building Ilimu and, you know, building a beautiful product, testing it, seeing the results of it, and Marie and I quitting our full-time jobs, working on it and giving it our all, there were a few other meetings when we would go to sell and go to schools and show them the product. And they'd say, oh yes, this is great. I can see why students improve their grades. I can see why literacy improves. But we don't have a computer lab here. We don't have laptops or tablets or smartphones. We don't even have electricity or connectivity. And so those kind of conversations ended up being another aha moment to me, which is we can build all the ed tech, all the fintech, all the agri tech, all the e-health and e-government services. But if we don't have power and connectivity, we are not participating in this 21st century economy. We're nowhere near where the rest of the world is. And so we've got to deal with this infrastructure wall that we keep banging against. And so that was a really transformational moment for me. And again, serendipity with brick working on infrastructure and transformation in the space. Uh, we're in the same building, friends with Eric and the founders of brick and thinking about that problem. And brick was one of the first companies saying that, yes, we're Silicon Savannah or we're calling ourselves Silicon Savannah here in Africa, but we're not actually building any hardware. And we need to build solutions for Nairobi and New Delhi if this is where we live, because we can't keep importing solutions from the East and the West when we don't live in the East and the West. We have different infrastructure problems and realities than the East and the West. So that coming together with the problems that I was facing when I would go and visit schools that brought Brick and Ilimu together and got Brick thinking about education. That along with the government's one laptop per child. So the president's campaign promise was one laptop per child. He met Brick and said, you guys are working in hardware. Can we do something together? Can you build me an education solution? And so that partnership developed very naturally in saying, can you come on board with your education experience and expertise with Ilimu? And we come on board with our hardware solution. What can we build? And we knew exactly what was needed. And we sat in Kenyan classrooms watching Kenyan teachers and we built a solution for her. And that's never been done before. Every other hardware solution has been built or has been imported from the East and the West. And so that's why the Keo Kit was this groundbreaking idea of what African engineering looked like. 
and it was relevant and it worked well and it was rugged and it's still working well. And so the journey after that got almost sad and murky. This turns into a bit of a dramatic sad story now, which is that we couldn't afford to keep doing this unless we were able as an organization to work with African governments and really sell this at scale. We weren't a big enough company to operate such large capital infrastructure. And so that's how our transition went to say, look, we're not landing the big government projects that we thought we would. Governments keep releasing device-based tender solutions rather than solution-based tenders. And so we made a strategic decision then, let's not focus on education. Let's focus a little lower in the foundational building blocks of development on connectivity. And that's where there's a lot of potential for growth. So that's been our focus since then, which is thinking about what are the barriers to connectivity and how do we overcome them? Okay. My question is, so you sold Ilimo and mm-hmm. then you joined Brick. No, I actually transitioned out of Ilimo as the CEO of Ilimo and I joined okay. Brick as president of Brick Education and continued on the board and as a shareholder of Ilimo. And then we sold it late last year. Okay. Well, congratulations then. That's uh, Thank you. <laughs> a good thing happened in 2020. So, Yeah. Well. And I uh, really serendipitously, again, is we launched Ilimu. We started Ilimu in the iHub. We had the launch party in the iHub and we sold it to the iHub. So everything really came full circle. Wow. Okay. All right. Can you just give an overview? Like what is the iHub just for the listeners? Oh, I'm so sorry. I always assume... Everyone in the world knows what the iHub is. The iHub was a co-working space, but an innovation hub that was started by the founders of Ushahidi. So Eric Hersman is one of those founders who also founded Brick. And it came out of this idea that, hey, we built Ushahidi while meeting in Java coffee shops and meeting online. And we built something that was really useful, not just for our country, but for the world. What would happen if we gave more Kenyans the opportunity to do that? Just a space where they can come, sit, think, have free, they don't need to pay rent. They have uh, high bandwidth, internet connectivity. What would happen then? And that's what the iHub was. That was a space where I could go after work, toy around with this idea of Ilimu without having to really commit to a monthly lease or employees or thinking about the admin and cleanup of an office. But just a space where I could tinker and try and innovate an idea. And if it worked, then very well free to move out of the iHub and grow and scale from there. But the iHub was this place that, what Eric used to say, they tried to to engineer serendipity. So all the right people would be in the room. When I needed a logo for Ilimu, I wasn't going online and posting ads for who can design a logo for me. I was tapping the shoulder of this friend of mine who I knew had great skill and I'd seen his work and I'd play foosball with him and go for drinks with him late in the evening. So it was really, it was serendipity in building the network, building the community, bringing speakers, people to talk to you about tax law and IP and investor relations and term sheets and branding and how to give a pitch and how to do a presentation. All these tools in the toolkit of entrepreneur, it's almost impossible to find an entrepreneur who has all of those things, who's able to technically build something, understand market needs, do the marketing, do the research, do the admin side of things, the operation side of things. You'll never find one person who has this. But if you have someone with an idea and some leadership skills and you put these tools into their toolkit, they're more likely to succeed. And that's what the iHub was about. Cool. So it's not an accelerator. No. Okay, cool. 
Um, so you tapped into something interesting. You said you went on site, observed, and so on. How were you doing that in rural areas or in this rural and remote areas or in the city or different cities? I'm asking that as well because this leads me to the next question. How hard or easy was it for you to gain the trust of the communities to sit there and observe and understand what their needs are? I've heard this Irish uh, saying that says, if you want to catch fish, listen to the sound of the river. And so we can sit in our ivory thrones at IHUB and in our offices and in UX labs and ideate and think about solutions all we want. But if we're not actually listening to the user that we're building for, if we're not actually listening to the problem before coming up with a solution and listening deeply and thinking insightfully about what that problem is and whether a solution is a technology problem or a business model problem or a none of your business problem, um, then, you know, we're not, we're doing a disservice to ourselves and to our end user or beneficiary. So our commitment to that is quite strong in that when we were building the Keo kit, for example, we said, we are going to spend an equal amount of time in the middle of nowhere. So in Samburu, a completely off-grid school in the middle of nowhere, like, you know, a few kilometers worth of dusty road off the main road. And we also spent time in a school that was down the road in a very highly populated informal settlement. And so looking at poverty in rural and urban are two very different kind of problems, but also they're also very similar problems. And so we made sure that when we were designing and building the Kio kit, we were doing that um, user research or that user experience and that observation and so on in both those environments and getting feedback from both those types of people. And so how we managed to do that, you know, it all boils down to relationships on that head teacher who thinks you're not here just to take pictures. You're not here to make yourself look good. You're going to leave us with a solution that will actually work for us. So you're committed to building that, building a solution that works for us. And you're committed to listening to the solution that we need, not to selling us whatever it is that you're making or whatever you're selling. And so that was really the heart of it. But, you know, it's natural that the first time you sit in a classroom, the children will be giggling and not listening and the teacher will be on their best behavior and the kids will be kind of on their best behavior. And you won't really see what a typical day in the classroom looks like. And you shouldn't use the observation of day one to go away and prototype a solution. You really sure. need to be there for 10 days, 20 days, 30 days until you look like part of the wallpaper. Not that these schools have wallpaper, but you know, you really look like part of the furniture and they're used to you and everyone's behaving more naturally and they know who you are. They know that you're going to be there. They know that there's nothing different that's going to happen from whether they behave well or not. And so there really is a difference between observation and an integration, like a true integration into that community. And I think that's the heart of true and insightful listening. No, for sure. For sure. You tap into a topic that's really important when you talk about experience design. And it's often a topic that is dismissed because you can jump into a solution without understanding what people need and the context and doing it over time and testing over time as well to come up with the best solutions because you learn over time as well. So I'm sure you do that all the time and the whole team is involved into that as well. Because as you said, as you rightly said, it's different in each context too. 
So yeah, uh, there's a, a really great story of our director of user experience, Mark Kamau, a brilliant guy. And the amount of iterations he went through on just the headphones, on how long that cord should be, what color they should be, how they're going to be over the ear and how the kids are not going to be able to, they shouldn't, you know, obviously exchange ear infections, but how would they share if they were to share a tablet? How would the teacher know that they're wearing them right? He went through so many iterations, just getting that perfect, getting the size of the button to power the entire system on. You know, there are people who live in communities before building solutions for communities, but how ingrained you have to be, how insightfully you have to be watching in order to notice these things and make these changes. Yeah. My question here is, how did you gain their trust? Like in three keywords or a few moments that allowed them to trust you and then feel that you're part of the furniture? Because that's a tough one. Um, I think the only word I can think of is listening. Is listening. You know, the minute you start lecturing people about what they should be doing and what you know better, you lose anyone's trust and respect. If you think about the fact that you're there to learn from someone, the number one thing you need to do is listen and listen carefully and deeply and not listen for the things that you want to hear, but truly listen to what people are saying and have a genuine interest in their lives and their work and their struggles and their triumphs. I think listening is really at the heart of it. Yeah, yeah, I'm asking this question because I've been through this as well, mm -hmm. you know, for projects linked to social innovation, but also projects uh, in the corporate world that both tend to have either if you're talking about the corporate world, they have consultants all the time coming right. in and trying to understand and then nothing happens. And when it's about social innovation, they have all those NGOs and then right. not much happens. This is why they always have this promise and then they get disappointed. This is why I'm right. saying it's not always, but many times, right? Mm -hmm. uh, gaining their trust can be tough, right. but once you get it and they start seeing something's happening, something's moving, something's being yeah. helpful, uh, you know, there's value. Uh, it yeah. makes a difference. So I like your perception of this as well. You tend to speak about responsible citizenship as well. What do you mean by that? I think a lot of us have the sense of what a responsible citizen should be. And we might differ on, you know, if me and you were driving around and we saw someone litter, we would think, oh, come on, don't litter. And if there was a vegan person, they might look at us and say, why would you do that to the environment? Like, why are you eating that burger? Um, you know, and we all have different ideas of what is responsible to do for the environment, the way in we treat the world around us, but also each other. But I guess I've been thinking more about digital citizenship, responsible digital citizenship. So what does it mean to be online? What does it mean to put a comment on someone's YouTube video or Instagram or Facebook post? And how do people understand that? How do people who are going online for the first time understand that they're leaving a footprint and not only a footprint for their own record that reflects who they are and, you know, whether they're a nasty racist person or a good positive person or a argumentative person, they're also leaving a footprint on maybe the self-esteem of a young girl or whoever's content that they're posting or commenting about. So that's the idea of responsible digital citizenship that I've been thinking about is without being paternalistic, how do we get people to be aware as we're bringing them online, often for the first time in a meaningful way, that there's some responsibility here. You've got some responsibility to yourself on how much time you should spend online. You've got some responsibility to 
the people around you on how you interact with them and talk to them. Obviously, it's very rude to be looking at your phone during dinner. And you've also got some responsibility to the other people who are sharing that online space in terms of the kind of content that you're generating and views and opinions that you're generating. That's a hot topic today anyway, with everything that's happening in the world. Exactly. Um, so creating this awareness from the beginning is important for sure. So I want to ask you as well, if you had, because we spoke about all the challenges, right, in the work you have beyond the actual value, but everything or the context around, right? If you had a magic wand, what would you change that could facilitate your work on the ground in Kenya and beyond? Because mm -hmm. we mentioned earlier that you managed to scale your solutions even in Latin America. So right. it's, it's the solution, but it fits in another yeah. context. So. so before I get to the magic wand, like it's really important to understand where we're coming from with this idea of connectivity in that there are three main barriers for people getting online. For 800 million people in Africa, not being online. And when I say that, I think sometimes we glaze over that as a statistic, but Maria, if I were to tell you to imagine your life without digital access, so without a smartphone, without having Wi-Fi, having data on your phone, what would that mean to you? That's a tough question, actually. Right. I, you know, if you had asked me this question in 2019, I would have responded mm -hmm. maybe differently, but in 2021 now, mm -hmm. with everything that's happening, I wouldn't mind being disconnected for a period of time, living right. with cows <laughs> in, you know, a remote area, uh, planting right. my tomatoes. Although I don't eat tomatoes, but, you know, planting my tomatoes. <laughs> right. um, yeah. But no, yeah, I to mean, put it in perspective, it's, is it's different it's, from being not having access, right? Yes, not um, having access, but making this decision, I think it would be very tough. I mean, we wouldn't be speaking right, right now. We would be missing out right, so much. Right. So, I mean, at the, you know, when, when, when I ask people to kind of put themselves in the shoes of someone without digital access, at the very superficial level, it's like, oh, well, uh, you know, I could take a break from Instagram or TikTok and so on. And like, okay, the entertainment side of thing is probably the first level of damage. And probably it's not even damage that's being done there. But, you know, if you really think about that, what would happen after a week, what would happen after a month, a year, and think about your economic prospects, about how much money you would be able to make, how many things you'd be able to learn, how much knowledge you'd be able to gain and share, it would be really limited by not being online. And so we need to start thinking of digital access as a serious privilege and understanding that the people that don't have it are born into a disadvantage. And so when I say that there are barriers to people getting online or for having digital access, those barriers are firstly access. So is there a signal where you are? Do you have a smartphone in your hand? And if you don't, then you don't even have the access to be able to get online. The second barrier is a really big one, especially here, which is affordability. And the funny thing about affordability is that as techies, we think everything is a tech problem, but actually the problem of connectivity is a business model problem, just as much as technology problem. So what kind of business model you have doesn't require someone to reach into their pockets and pay for data or buy a scratch card and get online or be able to pay an internet service provider for a privilege of being online. And the third barrier to connectivity is digital literacy. So what do you know beyond 
Facebook and WhatsApp? Do you know what it means to be online? Do you really understand the kind of services and education and opportunities that you can leverage once you're online? And so if I had a magic wand, I would shed a greater awareness on connectivity as a prerequisite for any kind of development in Africa. And we often think about education, healthcare, agriculture, fintech, e-government services, and so on. But without power and connectivity, none of those things can stand. None of those pillars of development have any foundation to stand on. And so power is a big one that people should be thinking about. There's been a lot of leaps of innovation and support and growth of this, especially solar industry. But when it comes to connectivity on the ground level, we really need to think about last mile connectivity as a serious foundational building block for development. And that's the magic wand that I would wave and get decision makers, donors, governments, development organizations to understand that. I agree, actually. And I think it's really nice the way you put it together because it's a nice closure as well. I want to tap into two things. You said it is a privilege to be connected. It should be a basic human right. I mean, I don't know when we're going to be achieving this, but people like you are working on that, which is awesome. And the other thing is you implemented your solution in Latin America as well, right? Is that correct? Yeah. So we have done um, teal kits and some connectivity in Latin America. Okay. And I'm not asking to compare because I know your focus is more on Africa, but my question here is based on your latest statement also, when you want to have everyone working together, what are the main challenges, you know, in terms of regulations, in terms of how business is being done, how the integration with between NGOs and governments is happening in Kenya and Africa? And I'm asking you this question because I also come from a developing country and I know it can be difficult when things can be simplified, but they can tend to make them difficult. What are the main challenges here? Just to close with that one, because I think it's important and many can learn from, you know, some of the things you manage to overcome yourself. When we think of true collaboration and when we think of true collaboration that works well and delivers serious impact and change to the lives of the people that we want to impact and change, then that needs to be approached with, again, like a problem solution mindset. Whereas now I think when we are collaborating, we're kind of bringing together people and people and, you know, party A says, I deliver solution A and party B says, I deliver solution B. And we try and kind of squeeze these things together into the same box rather than them fitting together as puzzle pieces quite seamlessly and quite flexibly to actually deliver the solution that's needed. So my observation of collaboration so far between different partners, government and development and private sector has been everyone wants to do what they're doing. And when they collaborate, they want to continue doing it exactly the same way, rather than thinking about what's the problem here? How can we work together to solve the problem? What expertise can we all individually bring together to create a solution that's seamless and end-to-end and well thought out and holistic for the end user. So those are my thoughts on collaboration. Cool. Thank you so much for this, Nivi. I mean, I really enjoyed the conversation and I really appreciate the work you're doing. If someone wants to know more about you and your work, where can they find you? On social media, I'm on Amka Kenya, which means Wake Up Kenya, A-M-K-A, Kenya. 
And of course, all the work that Brick does is on brick.com, brck.com. This episode with Livy Sharma comes to an end. We spoke about transformational and serendipity moments, barriers of connectivity and how to overcome them, observation and integration into communities, and what it means to be a responsible digital citizen, and much more. Thanks for listening. You are listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matloub. To support the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with anyone who can benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation, join the LinkedIn group or the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.